0: Whitehead drives to the hole,
1: hangs and won! Isaiah Whitehead ties it up at 67. Outlet pass, archidiacono, front court, slips, fires and that's it! The Seton Hall Pirates! defeat Villanova, 69-67, and for the first time in 23 years, they're Big East Tournament champion.
2: For the latest in Seton Hall Basketball and Seton Hall Athletics, this is Courtside Pirates with Chris Pazes. Miles
1: Powell gives Seton Hall the lead with 1.1 second to go, what
2: a shot by Miles Powell. Thompson shows it.
0: Kale steps back, lets it fly. Pyong!
1: Miles Kale, 84 83. And Seton Hall knocks off the number nine
2: team
0: in the nation. 84 83. What a win for the Pirates.
2: This weekly podcast will recap every men's basketball game throughout the Pirates' season.
1: Pow from Trenton. Woo! What Trenton makes, the world takes!
2: With special guests along the way, courtside pirates will dive into the pirates' season after every game, giving you my thoughts and opinions as Cian Hall looks to return to the NCAA tournament.
1: McKnight will inbound. Pow! They throw it up the Mambo! Powell. And go at the buzzer! Oh my goodness!
2: This is Courtside Pirates with Chris Pazes. After a thrilling week that saw the Seton Hall Pirates defeat number seven Texas and Rutgers at home, the Pirates were riding high into an exciting matchup at MSG versus Iona and the start of Big East play with the home opener versus St. John's and a road contest versus DePaul. However, All of that changed due to what many teams around the country are experiencing. A pause in play due to COVID. We thought we were in the clear, but we are not. A mad dash scramble for Scene Hall ended with Iona being canceled and the start of the 2021-2022 Big East schedule in the process as well. The Pirates were forced to forfeit the game versus St. John's, but a day later were cleared to resume basketball activities ahead of their road matchup with DePaul. Except... DePaul also had an outbreak resulting in the forfeiting of the game and the Pirates now stand at 1-1 in conference play without ever stepping on the court. It is a wild time for college basketball and the world in general as another holiday season is in the crosshairs of this pandemic. But on this episode of Courtside Pirates, we have a crossover special as the guys at Left Coast Pirates podcast join this episode to discuss the latest in scene hall basketball and preview what is to come the rest of the season. Who said rivals can't be friends? Mike and Tom are simply fantastic to talk to and hope you enjoy this episode as the three of us dive in deep on the scene hall Pirates season so far and what's to come. I would also love to hear from you. Follow me on Twitter at paisis. that is at P-A-I-Z-I-S, and reach out with any questions you have as they could be answered on an upcoming show. Also, if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please consider leaving a review for the show by scrolling down on the podcast page. From just west of the Ward Place Gate in San Diego, California, And if you've heard that before, you must be a fan of the duo that is Left Coast Pirates. They are Tom Kaharski, class of 1997, and Mike Desiri, class of 2001, who are now in their fourth season of Left Coast Pirates, which has seen them interview dozens of former and current players, coaches, writers, and more. Tom and Mike joined Courtside Pirates today in what I like to call a scene hall podcast crossover event. Tom and Mike, the men behind the magic of Left Coast Pirates, welcome officially to Courtside Pirates.
1: Wow, thank you, Chris. That's a heck of an intro, man.
2: You know, I had, to, I had to practice a little bit with the whole, you know, the high pitch, ready to go, and enthusiasm coming out of San Diego. You know, I'm kind of jealous. I'm seeing where you are right now, and it's, it looks a lot better than it is here.
0: No, no though. That's, that's just Tom. I, I don't have the off-the-charts energy that Tom brings to the intro or any kind of uh, guest introduction that he brings. It's, it's, it's just completely two different yings and yangs going on between the two of us.
2: Well, we're going to have fun with this one. And I just want to start it off with, give you guys a little plug, uh, you know, since we are friendly rivals here, just trying to bring the most out of scene Hall basketball as the season is really well underway. And just want to hear from both of you guys, just how did Luff Coast Pirates become what it is today? And what made you guys want to do a podcast on Scene Hall in the first place?
1: Well, it was kind of a lark to begin with, to be honest with you. You know, I, I've been out in California since graduation. Uh, Mike and I are fraternity brothers. And when Mike was moving out, I got the message through the network of of brothers that another guy was coming out to San Diego. So, you know, we started having conversations and whatnot and we really bonded over seeing all basketball. And when we get on the phone, you know, either at halftime or at the end of the games, and usually at both halftime and at the end of the games, it's just the stuff that we would say. I thought it was really interesting. You know, I thought it was funny. I thought it was interesting. And, Half the times, one of us would make a comment and say, I'd just say, I really need to make a podcast out of this. This is funny stuff. We're wasting this on each other. I mean, we're, neither one of us are worth this while. You know, we need to really share this information. And just one day, I kind of had Mike come over, and I had the equipment. I said, well, let's do this.
0: It, it's funny how the story gets skewed when you hear it from one perspective versus the other, right? I think Tom was completely in his own little world thinking that what we were sharing on our phone conversation was interesting. That was, that was not a shared philosophy at, at the time where we're having these conversations. I think it was uh, miles Powell's breakout game at Iowa, his freshman season. And Tom's like, this guy's going to be special. This guy's going to be awesome. And we just started debating back and forth for, it felt like over an hour. And that's when Tom goes, this is good podcast material. And I'm like, nobody wants to hear this stuff. Not at all. <laughs> so he probably ragged on me for a solid two years. Right. Cause that's, that was Powell's freshman year. And we didn't do it that year. We did it. We didn't do it. Powell's sophomore season. We did it that year that he took over as a junior and then Tom blackmailed me. He doesn't, he leaves that part out. You know, uh, there's a big camping scene out here in the the Southern California community. And I don't own any camping gear. And I would always borrow it from Tom when we had the, the local elementary school, like dad's outing with our, with our children. And Tom's like, well, I'm going to hold you hostage. You can't borrow the camping gear this year unless you're a, you put together a podcast episode and do like a little trial run. And then like, like the egos that we have, we do one episode, we get 25 people to listen and we think we're awesome. And then we look back, you know, years later and listen to that episode. And I'm like, that that was pretty bad, Tom. <laughs>
2: Well, I'll tell you what, guys, you know, you're in your fourth year. It, it's, you picked a great time to start a podcast, that's for sure. If you're starting this junior year of Miles Powell, where it was a year where everyone had very low expectations going into the season and they just went on a whirlwind. And, the, you know, the team has been what it is. And you look at the team now. Uh, they're coming in right now at an ultimate high. They're nine and one on the season with wins at home versus number seven, Texas. And then Rutgers right after they beat number one, Purdue, which completely ruined that night for C. and hall, in my opinion, just they, I, I get off the path, right? Where, cause I'm in Harrison. And as soon as I get off the path, they're down by five with like three minutes to go. We rush into the apartment, me and my fiance to try to watch the end of the game. And she puts on uh, checks, her phone real quick. And all of a sudden uh, Purdue and uh, Rutgers is over and it's, a Eugene Harvey esque running three versus St. Peter's back in the day. And it just completely stifles what was a great night for Scene Hall. It became a better night for New Jersey basketball, which is great because it led up to that. But you know, I heard the episode you guys did right after the Rutgers game, and it sounded like you guys, while you were recording that were living your best lives, if I'm not mistaken, because it sounded like certain people in this call right now were really hyped up for what was to come in terms of the rest of the season.
0: Well, we, we have different perspectives in life, Chris. I'm not trying to date ourselves here, but you're a little bit younger. you know when Tom and I have our, our families to deal with and I, and I love my kids, you get to step away and have the euphoria of a couple wins like that in a given week. Yeah, you jump on the podcast. That, that's that's our little escape as Tom likes to joke, you know we, we don't do, we don't do the bowling group, the old man bowling group at a, in, our, in our 40s here. We do the podcast. So to, to jump on and kind of have the two wins that we had. Yeah, it was good times. I think I think Tom was kind of building up to be bigger than it was, but it was a pretty big week. But I I'm more in your school. Couldn't we had enjoy that for more than five minutes? Give me more than five minutes before the buzzer beater goes in for Rutgers, and you know ESPN front page is just literally eclipsed by everything scarlet red. And instead of Seton Hall owning jersey at that moment, now like you said, it was now. Let's use this as a platform to build up what was going to go down on Sunday. I, that, that kind of rubbed me the wrong way, but you're right. It's, it's what's best for college basketball, you know, uh, in the New Jersey marketplace.
1: So you can see who sees the world as glass half empty and who sees it as glass half full. You know, you just got to enjoy the moment. But I, I'll tell you, Chris, we have a little rule uh, that we put into place uh, after the infamous Kentucky-Seton Hall game from the Garden. We don't podcast angry and we don't podcast happy. But unfortunately, this was a Sunday game and we had no time to digest it or, or to kind of get a bigger picture uh, of that game or of that week in and of itself. So, yeah, we were, We came in and we were in full bear. You know, we were ready for the world at that point.
0: So as we go into our fourth year of experience here, we're, we're in the amateur space of putting on these podcasts. I know there's guys that do it all the time for their professional you know duties, and they're cranking them out one after the next. But I think Tom does a great job post-production editing some of the, the stupid things we say or the, the mic flops that we have as we put the episode together. But I guess the best advice I can share is digest what took place in that game, in that week process the information, get, get your notes on paper. When Tom and I have to do it with a couple hour turnaround time, oh man, it's a mess. I think it's an absolute emotional mess because we haven't been able to process the, the intricate plays. We haven't been able to kind of put together what the long-term ramifications are. We are a prisoner of the moment. We are true fanaticals, just like everybody else, which is why I like enjoyed doing the podcast at the end of the day. No, that's something for me that, you know,
2: I, I come from a WSU legacy. So it's, I was there for four years, undergrad, six, uh, two years in grad school. So I stayed straight through mainly just so I can stay on WSU and call games. But when I started this podcast, again, the biggest thing I try to keep to myself is never do it right after the game, especially after the big wins, because I know I'm not going to be rational when I talk about it. So I like to digest it, you know, think about, uh, think thinking in advance, but you know, what, what's really interesting to me about The last couple games overall, you know, the style of the play has been good for the most part, but what Bryce Aiken has done for this team in the last two games for them, I think has really been something that pirate fans have been hoping for since last year. You know, he had the game winning score versus Texas MVP honors versus Rutgers and myself included. I've been very critical of Bryce mostly because of his inability to stay healthy on the court. But his, conch, uh, his confidence has just been absolutely infectious. He has really been able to just show that he can go 0 for 7 from 3 and then hit 1-3, and he's got that lights-out ability. And it, it, I think it resonates with the team, especially with guys like Jared Roden, who has said it now multiple times, as has Kevin Willard. What have you taken from him so far this year? Because I think the biggest thing is his health, but it's also, I think, his confidence.
0: I'll let you go first. Well, well, You've been begging on Bryce for how, how, many, how many times have you been begging on Bryce? Go wait, ahead. I've heard it once you... or twice. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's not on Bryce. You know, you know what you're getting from Bryce. You've seen it uh, through his time with Harvard. You knew how exciting of a player he could be. But if he can't stay hurt, if he can't stay healthy, it's it's not that useful. You know, like Mike likes to say, you know, the best ability is availability. And, you know, none of this surprises us. You know, it's funny. You mentioned the 0 for 7. Uh, Mike is blowing me up on the text saying, Oh, I can't believe he took that shot or I can't believe he did this, but that's his game. You know, you know, it's going to happen. you got with Bryce, you got to take the good with the bad. Mike, he is 25 years old. You are not coaching it out of him. Okay.
0: So I, I I think that's part of the frustration with Bryce Aiken. I don't think people want to take his injury history and put the blame on him. But I, I think the blame should be directed at Kevin Willard. It doesn't. We're, we're frustrated with Bryce. It's just natural human element. I think there was a lot of eggs put into that Bryce Aiken basket. We knew that if he did stay on the court, you have this potential of what we saw in flashes at Harvard in that junior season before he kind of got hurt with the foot again coming to Seton Hall. So when he had that breakout game against Creighton last year, when he, you know, when he has those moments where he goes off for five minutes and takes over a game, that's what we thought we were going to have for a full season. That's why we thought we were going to go back to the tournament again for a fifth consecutive season. So I'm, I'm not shocked right now, Tom, but I'm sorry. Just because you're 25 and you, you have all this experience underneath you does not mean you still can't learn from what's, what's taking place. Why can't Kevin sit there and go, Bryce, give me an efficient shooting performance. Be the leader on the court to take the right shot so other guys like Harris and Yetner are also not jacking from three. Be that you guy. You can put
1: handcuffs on him, Mike. You got to let him be I... him. That's what yeah. you get. That's what you get, Michael.
0: Come on. The green light should not be your crossover half court and shooter from the logo. That There's got to be a little bit of restriction. Don't you agree, Chris? No, I do. And I think that, that's the one key. I think you look at what Powell did
2: between his junior year and his senior year where, you know, come his senior year, he was really starting to force more of the shots and his his percentages were going down. But you still knew that Powell had to be the guy. Last year, Sandro was expected to be the guy. Aiken was going to be that guy that was going to come in at the point guard position and give them a real opportunity to succeed and get to that fifth straight NCAA appearance. And I think a underlying issue with the team last year was... Aiken's inability to stay healthy, which ultimately has let fans feel that way about him. But looking at this year, I I agree with you. I I think he has to find a way to be efficient. Now, I don't want him to lose his confidence, but there's certain ways. You guys
1: are are missing my point. You guys are missing my point. I'm not disagreeing with anything you say. Do I want to see him more efficient? Sure. Do I want to see him take better shots or better decisions? Sure. But I'm not expecting it, so it doesn't freak me out when he does it. I mean, it is. It is what it is, Michael. Stop it. If
0: he misses misses the shot against Texas and it's the culmination of being 0 for 7 up until that point and he takes a step back three with under a minute to play instead of maybe getting to the rim, drawing a foul, people are going to criticize. Now it goes in and all is forgiven and that's the guy we want and he's the one I want in my foxhole. Absolutely. But if that shot doesn't go down and he was now 0 for 8 from 3 for the game, it's a different story. It's just
2: yeah, a different story. Don't,
1: put, you know, don't You, put you look shackles at that
2: b- between that one shot that he did make and then on top of that, the free throw shooting, which was abysmal in that game. The, the, a couple p- plays here and there could have made a drastic difference in everyone's uh, emotions going into that game against Rutgers and the confidence level of this team. So I think that's something that really took a hold for this team. And you know, at the end of the day, sometimes it's better to be lucky than good. The shot hit. He, he was 0 for 7. I'm sure a couple of those shots were unlucky. There were shots... He made the one shot he needed to, and the team finally learned how to hit a free throw in the game against uh, Texas in the second half. And I think it really showed that this team had that momentum. And the defense that they've had so far has allowed them to stay in these games, even when their shooting is not as good as it could be.
0: Sure. Not, not to belabor this point on Bryce. I mean, we saw his efficiency in the Rutgers game. I think I almost did a double take when I saw, saw that his final numbers were 7 for 12 from the floor in that game. I think at this point, what Bryce has been able to demonstrate uh, in the Texas game, in the Michigan game, and uh, even in the Rutgers game, to an extent, he's the guy that you know has the stones to take the big shot. He wants the big shot. Um, and I think there are other guys that are capable of making those plays, but I just think there's a certain personality that you have to have in those moments. I think you have to be able to you know, fail in certain positions and then come back and still want to take that shot again. I'm not sure who has that personality or that dynamic besides Bryce on this team at this point. It could be Jared Roden down the road. I don't know if it's Miles Kale. I thought Jameer Harris was going to have a little bit of that, but he hasn't found his legs yet. So, I mean, you need that guy to win a game in the last minute to two minutes of a a tight ball game, especially when you get a biggie's play. I'm with Tom to this extent. I'm going to live and die with Bryce being that guy at this point.
2: Mike, we're going to touch on Jimmy Harrison a little bit, too, because I think you hit something right there that I think has been a detriment to the team because he hasn't given them that boost. But we're going to get to that. The one thing I want to get out of the way with you guys, and it's the elephant in the room, and that is COVID right now. And I don't want to make it the focal point of this conversation, but... Where we are right now, it is the focal point of where the team is. The team is not going to end up playing right now 17 days between the game against Rutgers and the game against Providence, which is just insane. They, they've missed out on the game at Iona uh, versus Iona at MSG. They missed out at the game at home against St. John's. And then miraculously, the team is now able to feel the team, but now DePaul can't feel the team. And the game at DePaul is canceled. So the Pirates finished the regular season at 9-1. and one. It's just a crazy time for everyone in college basketball and sports in general in the world. What's your take on this? And if you're this team who does have so much momentum, where do you take it to get back to a point of level setting everything ahead of a Providence game that hopefully does actually happen?
1: We try not to bring any kind of a political end to any of our podcasts. You know, this, this is a sport podcast. Folks are supposed to get a little enjoyment out of this. Uh, but I, I, you know, I took, I was a BS. i got a BS in computer science. I'm a scientist at heart. I believe in science. Go get vaxxed. I don't want to get anything else. If anything, you are remediating the vulnerabilities in your team. Now, as, as far as um, 17 days, we saw teams last year go on multiple pauses and play basketball. Do not use this as a crutch. Do not use this as a excuse. Come back against Providence and play your game. We actually had an interview with a Baylor beat writer in the can. We had to totally scrap because right after we got done recording it and editing it, game got canceled. I don't want to hear it. Go out there, play your basketball, and get it over with. So
0: I'll agree with Tom on a lot of bullet points that he brought up. I'm. Try to, try to keep the, pod, the, the podcast fan-friendly and about basketball. But you're right, Chris. This is the landscape that we're facing right now. We, we had to do a whole episode with Zach Braziller uh, this past week just talking about that. So it, it has to be addressed. Uh, I'm pro Vax. I, I still think you have to respect other people's decisions. However, I'd like to see the team be unified in their decision to move forward. You saw in St. John's situation, hey, it, it was not fun that Julian Champagny you know, could not play in the Pittsburgh game. But they had the rest of their roster ready to move forward because they were fully vaccinated. It'd be nice to, to know that, you know, you might be down a man or two, but it's next man up. The team's going to rally around and everybody else that can take the court allows the team to continue to move forward. Because as fans, I know it's about business behind the scenes. It's about getting the revenue from the NCAA tournament. But as a fan, I want to watch the games. I just want to root for the colors no matter who decides to suit up on that particular night. Now it might be the, to the detriment of the team because they might lose a game or two, but uh, Tom and I joke, it'd be kind of interesting to see them, you know, go to battle with eight guys and see a couple people that are normally not getting the major minutes, have a chance to step up and, and rise to the occasion.
1: Um, you, you know, to Mike's point about the having eight guys step up or seven guys, you know, there was a lot of chatter in the past couple of days, especially about our comments about seeing them play. Um, you know, if the rule is seven. I don't care. If, if you don't like the rule being seven, off season, make it a point at whatever meetings you have. Let the school presidents come together and make that change. But if it's seven and you've got seven players that can play, hey, too bad so said, play your game.
2: I, or, I completely or, agree. I completely agree with that in the sense that, you know what? Why do you have these scholarship players to begin with at the beginning of this season, you were a team that prided itself on the depth that you have. This is the deepest team coach willers have. You were going to play 11, 12 deep. Okay. This is the season to do it. And if you don't have guys that have stepped up, that's on you to get these guys minutes and the confidence on the core. And I think what's interesting too, is overall you look at the way this has been for a team like St. John's. I think it would benefit them right now to have to reschedule a game versus Seton Hall versus taking just the forfeit because they're not getting any quality quadrant one wins out of it. This is a opportunity for them to show that, yeah, they can go on the road because it's, it it's a road game for them. Beat Seton Hall at their home on a team that's red hot and have that real momentum going into the new year. And now for them, it's just a forfeit. It's a win. It doesn't mean anything for them. Just like for C.N. Hall, it doesn't mean anything that they lost this game. So I yeah, think for... If, but, yeah, but, but, I,
0: but I agree with Zach, though. I mean, Zach, Zach makes the point of if you don't have Champagny and they put that performance on the court at home against Pittsburgh, you know, if they're going to go in with that same roster without practice time to kind of work out the kinks and Champagny's not going to be there again, it probably was to not, not to their benefit either. It, it would behoove them to play this game as a rescheduled matchup down the road when everybody can be on equal footing. I think the, the biggest frustration about all this COVID stuff that, you know, I, I don't have any insight towards, or I can't tell you when a decision is going to come is that you're seeing on social media, all the different conferences take swift action about, you know, changing their forfeit policy, or even as Tom said, some are moving to the, you have seven, you're mandated to play. If see, if the big East is not happy with the seven rule, make it, just make a change now. Change the forfeit rule. Make it nine guys. Get on the same page, and let's not drag this out and be the the followers. Be a leader as one of the major conferences in college basketball, and take control over you know what is taking place. Is you guys leading a sham? I mean, the Big East is taking the brunt of all this fallout right now, and they got teams that could possibly make some noise come March this year, and they got to position their programs to you know to build those resumes to get higher seed lines you know, for the tournament. And right now, because of these forfeits, as you said, there are no contests. They're not not helping. They're not hurting. But in my eyes, I think they're going to hurt long-term.
2: And, you know, one thing to point out too is, you know, not for right or wrong reasons, whatever way you want to feel about it. uh, The Big East was probably the last for either collegiate or professional conference to suspend their season. Uh, If you remember, everyone else was shutting down that Wednesday night. I went to the bathroom during the St. John's game because I was getting ready to go to the Prudential Center, uh, to the Garden. And I come back and St. John's is playing another team after halftime because they had just postponed the game and canceled it. So I think there's, um, you know, there's a precedent right now with the Big East and how they, they're handling it. It's going to be interesting to see if they actually do change it, especially now that some of these forfeits have happened. But I will say this, and you know, overall, the conference overall has just been a fantastic conference to watch this year uh, i think it goes without saying that pending cannabis, cannibalization or you know covid uh, this is a 17 potential to, uh conference that makes it into the tournament this year and i don't know for you guys you, do you guys view it that way i think six or seven teams is very realistic of where we saw them one earlier and right now with the pirates ranked 15 do you personally feel that they
0: are the best team in this conference Tom doesn't like to talk anything outside of Seton Hall, right? Tom, we're where Seton Hall fake centric puck. So, you want me to take this one first? No, I, no, I, I don't. <laughs> you, you can take this one first. I
1: can appreciate asking about Big East play here. So, go ahead, Mikey. You no, no I mean, I, I, I
0: turned on the game last night between Marquette and, and UConn. And, you know, here's what I took out of a game like that. I, I think you got a little bit of the old Big East feel in that game. A little, you know, bruising down low in the paint. You know, a lot of a lot of fouls. A lot of hard-fought you know diving on the floor for loose balls. I had an old Biggies feel to it, uh, not maybe all the way back to the 80s, but more grinded out Biggies kind of style. I think you're going to have a lot of contested games in conference play, but I still think you have to see teams like Marquette and St. John's and Butler show me more if they're going to make that jump into the bubble group. Now that, that's that's the other three that are going to really challenge to push, you know, the, the multiple bids. I think Seton Hall, Villanova. Xavier, UConn, they're they're going to be there, no questions asked. And then you have those other three. Who am I missing here in that group? That's seven. Uh, I think Georgetown and DePaul. I mean, DePaul's an interesting case. DePaul's got to prove it to me long term. They they, they tend to get off time, to these though. good starts, right? And then all they fall the off. The, this, they, like, this is DePaul at, at Louisville. They 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 did beat Rutgers as well. It's not like you know they have all cupcakes on their schedule. Well, Tom will tell you Rutgers is a cupcake. Um, but who else am I missing a group? That's nine. I'm missing two teams off the top of my head. Who am I drawing a bike? Oh, Creighton. Creighton's an interesting test case. I think they're young. I think the grind of the big East season could start wearing on them, but they have a nice resume so far. Uh, There's going to be about three to four teams that fall into that five to seven range that I think will be in that first in first four out conversation as we get into March, which to be honest, we were hoping that our third best team in the conference last year was in that conversation of being on the bubble. So, to kind of bring it full circle, because of the depth that we're seeing from the Big East in their non conference performance, because I think they're going to pick each other off throughout conference play and have a more balanced Big East record. Yeah, if you have someone like Seton Hall on the top end of the spectrum where they're ranked right now, that's going to be a team that could possibly get a three, four, or five seed in the Big East, I mean, in the NCAA tournament. And based on the out of conference play, how can you not put Seton Hall? at the top of that list right now. I don't think it's an unfair ranking. I think they have a lot well, to prove still, but not, not unrealistic.
1: You know, if, if we don't edit Mike down, he'll start talking about Southwest Arkansas A&M and their record against West Coast teams, you know, in the Pacific time zone on you. But, you know, the question was, is Seton Hall the best team in the Big East? And right now, we're a third of the season in. has had... Injury problems, you know, probably their best player, Sanogo, has been hurt. Uh, Villanova is going through a tough stretch right now with four losses already. But we've seen Nova have these, you know, two-week periods where they, they fall off for a couple games. And, these, and their four losses are primarily against top-end teams. So before I start, you know, crowning Seton Hall as the best team in the Big East, I'd like to see a little bit more of the schedule before we get there. are they playing better than are they playing better? What if Xavier wanna be Tommy? No, no, Mikey, this is my turn. This is when (laughs) I I edit you out. (laughs) I'd like to see them play a little more. I want to see the big East. And yes, you know what happens in the Big East schedule? We always cannibalize each other. You know, you look at twelve and eight and you're jumping up and down as a record. You know, and and you're two games off of being five hundred at that point and you're still jumping up and down. So Right now, we're playing probably better than any other Big East team, but...
0: Right. Uh, can I throw this? I'm going to throw this to both of you guys. I'm watching that Villanova-Xavier game in the first half last night, and Xavier looks like the real deal, and then Nova you know, recovers after halftime and dominates that second half. If Xavier comes away with a road victory, I think Nova hadn't lost on their little on-campus arena for like 36 straight games. If Xavier walked away with a victory there that... Couldn't Xavier have made the claim to be the uh, the darlings of the Big East or the team to beat early on if they pulled out that victory last night? I mean, it's it's I, close. I'm, I'm going to say yes, but this is why
2: Villanova is as good of a team as they actually are because there's a reason why you play the full 40 minutes. They showed it in the second half what they can do when they get some momentum. I think anyone who thinks that their losses today are bad losses doesn't watch college basketball. Uh, you know, they're they're losing like. Like you guys said, to top 10 teams, most of which were top five at the time. Uh, so it's not a, it's not one of those situations where you look at it and you're like, you know what? Villanova's not that good. Xavier is, is good, but Villanova is probably better. I think right now with Seton Hall, the biggest thing to me is, and they just need to prove it. They need to prove that they are able to play offensive consistently you know their defense has just been stellar I think they're one of the best defensive teams in the country overall and I think there's no question about that but they need to get it together in a complete game I don't think they've actually really shown what they could do when everyone is clicking at the same time look at Jared Ronan he's had games early on this year where he has not looked good in the first half at all and in the second half he has really turned it on now could that be because like he had like the miles power effect where in the first half of games Guys were on him like crazy, but then in the second half, he was able to like just instill that will and like willpower to get the big shots down the stretch? Or is it because he doesn't need to be that guy because of that depth that we've already talked about? So I think there's things with Sean Hall right now where you're not getting guys to all click consistently together, but I think they have that type of ability to do that. It's just a
0: matter of actually showing that they can. A couple interesting topics you brought up there. So we'll come back to defense because I feel like defense is the crux of this team, but Jared Roden was what, was what you just last brought up. I think Jared has just got a little bit of nervous energy right now. I think he's coming out over amped in some of these games. Specifically, we saw that in the Rutgers game and I give Willard some credit here because Willard gave him a quick hook to kind of take him out in the first four minutes, make him sit down and kind of digest what was going on in that game. Roden's going to have his opportunities to put his fingerprint on the game Uh, you know, in a positive or negative manner, he's going to get his shots. He's going to find a way to crash the glass and do the dirty, you know, little nitty gritty things to get him extra opportunities to score the basketball. And the the team is going to defer to him at times. So I I just think Jared needs to kind of get into the flow. Like you said, there's other weapons on this team and let the the game come to him a little bit more. I don't think it's about teams trying to double or triple team him. I think he just needs to kind of grow into the leadership role of being the guy. And, you know, he's, He's what 10 games into it so far. Yeah. He's he's still feeling it out. So I I think he'll be fine. I think what, what a lot of people do in terms of evaluating Seton hall beyond the defensive side of the ball is that they haven't seen their full a game yet. Right. The, The Michigan game, the Texas game, they did not look pretty on the offensive side of the ball. They found ways to get it done. They had guys step up, but they haven't cohesively played a solid game offensively against a top tier opponent. And, there's what lies in part of the question here, Chris, is if you look at Michigan and you look at Texas, those are the marquee wins. They are top 10 victories at the time that they took place. But when you start looking at the depth of the, the schedules that those two teams have played and how those two teams have performed, Texas and Michigan really haven't beaten anybody on their side of the docket yet. So the question is, you know, by the end of the season, will Michigan and Texas still play out and represent a top 20 net ranking that they both currently have? Or will they continue to kind of potentially drop off and lose more games in conference play? So I think that's where there's maybe some doubt with Seton Hall potentially being maybe lower than 15th or Hey, if they would have beaten Ohio state, they could have made the argument that they could have been top five right now for all we know. It's, it's a lot of unknowns and I think conference play is just going to vet that
1: out. You know, you made a comment about offensive play and I think a lot of it, and we've bemoaned this throughout, you know, the podcast so far this season is that there's a lot of hero ball. And then there's a real negative kind of uh, connectivity to uh, the hero ball. I don't mean it in a, in a sort of way. It's, you know, there's a lot of times ball gets brought down. There's one pass, there's dribble, dribble, dribble shot, or it gets brought down and there's a shot. So the ball isn't moving. So there's no offensive flow, and we've seen it in the final end game statistics. I mean, how many games have we seen with single-digit assists going through? I mean, it's amazing. And they've lost one game on a deep last-second three. So if this team, to your point, Chris, this team ever starts clicking, watch out.
2: Guys, they had four assists in the game against Ohio State. Yeah, I'm okay with that. I'm not okay with, that. Not okay with mean, that. And, you know, and that's, you know, you know what's crazy? I, I was at the, when I was at the game against Texas, at one point I was just screaming, just play the weave. Like I was just screaming at you, which I, I hate that. I hate that play, but just slow,
1: slow
2: down the damn game. Just, you know, get your guys in positions to try to do something. And like, I hate the weave. And like, that, I hate it. But you know what? Like it just slow down the game a little bit. You make a good point, Tom, because I think right now it's a chuck and shoot type of mindset, which, you know, in a lot of ways, this is what basketball has become. And it, it's not just, you know, what Scene Hall is doing here. But I think when you look overall at these, these games right now, for me, Someone who I don't think has been getting any praise or you know grief is Alexis Yetna. I really personally, from seeing him play live, I think he has a great, very high basketball IQ. He is almost always in the right position underneath the basket. He is very, he's clearly very physical. He's a matchup nice nightmare. Him and Samuel with a lot of the teams we've played already. What are you guys seeing from Yetna right now? And like, are you impressed? Do you find that he? should be doing more. What, what is your take on him and I, how him like, and his like Samuel dynamic is? I'd like to see. Go ahead, Tommy. Go ahead. I've
1: caught you in a lie, Chris. I've caught you in a bit of a lie. You say you listen to our podcast, but now you're saying you haven't heard anyone getting, getting any grief or any compliments. But in all, in all seriousness. That was, that's a layup.
2: That's a layup, Tom. That's a layup. <laughs> if we do these a couple you more, don't... you'll catch my sarcasm. <laughs> <laughs>
1: You know, Yen is an interesting character. You know, when we thought he was going to come in, and we we love those rebounding numbers we saw over the past few years, and everyone we talked to, and I, I think every pundit out there was saying, "Oh, the rebounding, it's going to translate. It's going to be if anything happens, he's going to be able to rebound." And we don't see that. But if you watch his game, he tends to float out to that three point line. And when he gets a success, it's when he's getting his big butt in the middle, playing that big man game, going to the line. And he shoots that free throws really well. So get down low and you're right. We're Mike and I were joking a couple of times. Just run that baseline. Someone will get you that ball. Just run that baseline. Get that ball down low. They're going to hit you. You
2: and know, I he, reminds me a lot. he reminds me a lot of Sandro. When Sandra would get confident, he would chuck up a three at the beginning of the game. And then he would refuse to be down low where he was, is his bread and butter. He's I think getting as an agile guy who has a good defensive prowess underneath the basket, but you know, he gets up to that, to that perimeter shooting. And then he gets lost out there. At one point he was running the point in one of the games I was watching in person. I was like, what is going (laughs) on with him? Like where, where does he, I know he knows where he's supposed to be, but these guys get in these, in these mindsets, like you said, where they can shoot from anywhere. And it changes their whole dynamic.
0: Sorry, so that goes back to this red light, green light stuff. So we talked about it with Bryce. I, I think there needs to be a little red light, green light with Yetna. I think we prefer to see his ass down in the post, doing more uh the dirty work, hitting the boards, balancing the floor. Uh, there was a couple times that we mentioned in the last episode as well that they went to him in the post in the Rutgers game. And he got to the free throw line once. He had a little baby hook over his right shoulder on, on the baseline. I don't mind him shooting the corner three. I mean, if you look at Yetna's... uh, Yetna's, uh, I can't talk right now. I got mush mouth. There you go, Tommy. Alexis's numbers throughout his career, right? When he was shooting his 37% his breakout season that freshman year at Florida, he was only shooting about two attempts per game. You know, he shot three and a half attempts last year. He's almost three attempts a game this year for Seton Hall. And you've seen the numbers drop off 31%, 25%. People also forget that when he shot 37% back that freshman year, the line was closer and he might have a little to call Molson syndrome in him, where, you know, to call was, well, look, we're evaluating guys numbers at their previous stops at a lower level of play time that you like to point out when the, when the line was closer for certain guys, when you move that line back, it makes it a little more challenging. So he's really good from the corners. The line has not gotten moved back in the corners. The line has gotten moved back from the top of the key and out in the wings. And when he's been inefficient from his three-point shooting, it's been when he's been kind of rushing it from up top. So I, I don't mind if he shoots the three. Just do it with, within the, the realm of where you're successful. And him, like Tom says, when a guy goes baseline, if he wants to float to the corner, sure. But otherwise, I want him cleaning up the glass. He's had a different attitude underneath the basket. So has Tyrese lately. And I thought that made them more dynamic in these last two games. They, had, they didn't have that edge outside of Ike. And the two of them, I thought, brought a different edge to the team on the offensive side of the of the basketball. I mean, the, the defensive edge is always there. I want to kind of take this offensive philosophy and kind of spin it a little more and kind of challenge the both of you. You guys keep on saying dribble, dribble, shot. I, I'm going to defend Kevin Woolley here for a second. I, I am, I know. I know you're giving me these like shocked looks uh, over here, Tom. I'm going to defend Kevin because Kevin says, I need more time. I got a new roster. They're, they don't have that cohesion yet. I have certain things that I want to do. You can see that when Kevin's teams get you know, on the same page, defensively, they're switching properly. They have the right rotations offensively. Th- there's no bones about it. Kevin plays pick and roll basketball and playing pick and roll basketball. You have to have a certain harmony with the guys that you're running the initial pick and pop with, or the pick and roll with. So you have a new point guard in Kadari, You have Aiken who hasn't had as many reps with these guys last year and you have all the new faces. So I think what's happening is you just don't have that cohesion and familiarity in running the pick and roll which leads to not kind of breaking into the the teeth of the defense collapsing the defense and you know there were a lot of late shot clock jump shots i don't think it's hero ball i think it's lack of execution on the pick and roll so kevin should get some more grief and maybe we can parallel this now to jameer harris if he can't run a successful pick and roll find a way to run the guy a couple you know down screens and run him off a couple picks and pop out into the corner and get a shooter a good look from three. Kevin is not running set plays to get other guys' looks. He's just relying on the pick and roll, and that has not kind of, that hasn't worked itself out yet. And it might in time, but that's why I think you get this sloppy basketball on the offensive side. You know, you couldn't
2: help me with a better transition here because I wanted to get into Jameer Harris. And you you mentioned it earlier, Mike and Tom. I, I want to touch base on this as well with you because for me, Jameer Harris, in terms of what I thought he was going to be coming into the season, again, based on what he did at, Smaller schools, I really had higher expectations for him, especially on pick and roll plays, and we just have not seen that. And I think it's kind of been a detriment to this team because that's been someone off the bench that you were hoping the Pirates could rely on to kind of be that change of pace type of player, and you know, not really feel the, fill the void in a way that they don't have because it's they need it right now with this team. I think with the way Kadari Richmond's been playing and with Bryce Aiken, you know, needing to do too much on the offensive side and forcing shots where do you guys view Jameer Harris right now? And I know Mike, you've kind of said where you are right now, but Tom, you know, you've been quiet over there talking about Jameer Harris and I'm, I'm curious, what's your take on him and what would you like to see really from him come big East play? Because at the end of the day, what he's going to be doing from now until then is really going to be the, the meat of the season that people are going to judge him on this year.
1: Well, when, when we were doing our season preview, I said, I was cautiously optimistic about Jameer Harris. And that's just from uh, historic Uh, kind of a history, uh, if you will. You know, you take a look at guys that have come from lower level teams. It takes them a little bit to get into the flow and and, and become productive. And I don't think, for all the things that Mike just said, I don't think uh, the offense is doing him any favors. Uh, Jameer doesn't look like a guy who can take folks off the dribble at the the biggest level because every time he tries to do that, he gets thrown out thrown uh, into, the, into the crowd. It, it doesn't look like he can just work off the bounce. Uh, it, that's not his game. But when he gets his feet set, throws his shots up, they're a thing of beauty. But you got to run plays that get him to that kind of position. I think he could be a real valuable member of the team. I think he could be that instant offense off the bench, you know, hit two or three uh, threes a game but you got to put him in the right positions to succeed. And I don't think the team has done that at this point.
2: I think that's fair. I I think the dynamic of this team hasn't allowed for him to be in that role. Um, And I think really for him, it's also that comfort level of where he was last year versus this year. But it will be curious to see the level of confidence coach Willard has in him come Big East play, because I think there's going to be times we're going to need someone, especially with the way COVID is right now. And it's going to be curious to see if coach Willard has the faith in him.
1: Don't you yeah, feel I don't like- think last year. I don't think last year was a fair. I, I think you can throw out last year. They played ten games. American played ten games, uh, and uh, a majority of them were against the same teams. Uh, it, it's just. It, it, it's. I don't think that's a fair thing to look at. I think you look at two years ago for him. He was a thirteen or fourteen point a game scorer. I, he's going to be valuable. You just got to use him correctly.
0: I also think he's, he's rushing it too, right? I mean, he's kind of taking some shots that, that are outside of his problem, his normal range. I think, Tom, you said it numerous times. When his feet are set and he's toe to the line, you feel like that shot's going down. When he's coming off the dribble or he's shooting off the dribble or he's taking another five or six feet back, yeah, I know he made that shot against one you know, uh, who was that American, um, but he just doesn't feel comfortable taking that shot right now. And I think he's got that – looking over his shoulder mentality where if he doesn't make an immediate impact in the game he's going to get yanked and I, I when you play that way I think things tend to go worse and I don't think he did very well in the Rutgers game he he forced a couple of things early before you know it it looked like he was looking over his shoulder and what did Willard do Willard kind of glued him to the bench for the majority of the second half if I'm not mistaken I don't even think he got in the second half in the Rutgers game did he I don't recall and I don't think I don't. he did I don't think he did. So, I mean, we were joking about the doghouse, but, you know, Jameer is going to have to kind of find his role on this team. The role on this team is not scoring 20 points a game. It doesn't even need to be putting up five to six three-pointers. It's just kind of making the defense respect that there is a sharpshooter on the floor so the pick and roll can be more effective. So if they're going to sag off or they're going to collapse in the lane to neutralize Kadari, he's going to be able to have to bang down a couple, and then that's it. You know, they're going to have to stay in his back pocket and just keep those lanes open for our point guards to have more room to operate or for Jared to take his guy one-on-one at the elbow. But right now he's not making that three pointer. And that kind of limits his value for this team, because I'll be the first to admit he is him on the defensive side of the ball right now is getting exposed a little bit. So Willard's going to go with somebody like kale for major minutes instead of putting Harris on the floor. He just is.
2: Yeah. And you know, I, looking at where this team is right now, the biggest thing to me is just the confidence level of the coaching staff right now, because I think they've clearly bought into the team has bought into the defensive mindset and I, I didn't want to have to bring him up, but you know, coach Willard really, he's, he's had a hell of a, starts his conference play right now. I mean, in terms of non-conference schedule, the team is nine and one. I did not expect this going in. I thought a seven and four record would have been fantastic. I really did. I thought a seven and four record would have been right where they should be going into conference play based on everything going on with this team. But you know, he, he passes PJ for second on the all time list. And just to give you guys a little bit of background with me with him. So I was on WSU my freshman year, the last year of Bobby G And I was the lucky freshman to get to call the news of his firing uh, at the station.
1: Oh, poor Bobby.
2: (laughs) So I I was there for that. And I later was at Coach Willard's first press conference and his introduction. And I've seen the bad years of Willard as you guys have. But I saw it firsthand. Um, When I finished grad school, it was Whitehead and company's freshman year. So, you know, I was at, my birthday was the night that the team decided to start having fights underneath the uh, Prudential Center uh, and a couple guys, Jared Cena and uh, Sterling Gibbs quitting the team. So I've, I've seen all the bad. And then I feel like Don Mattingly where, you know, you leave the Yankees and then all of a sudden the Yankees start winning uh, championships. And that's exactly what happened. But I want to talk to you guys about Willard and, you know, you guys as the veteran podcasters, you guys are, and the experience you have with Seton Hall, you've seen a decent amount of coaches uh, since you were students what does his legacy mean to you guys as not even just as like podcasters, but as fans and what's there left to prove? Cause to me, a sweet
0: 16 has to be in the cards. So I, I don't think his legacy is fully written yet. Um, there, there is a, a bunch of chapters that have already been established, right? So he did accomplish something that he's probably not going to get as much credit for because of his record in those first five years or four years was not spectacular, but he cleaned up, the Bobby Gonzalez image perspective that Seton Hall was having. So, I mean, Bobby went the transfer route. He took some players that might have had some more questionable backgrounds, uh, talented players, but he couldn't get them to mesh on the court. And then the fallout afterwards just kind of left Seton Hall with a black eye. So I don't think people realize that when they look back for the younger generation, look back at Kevin Willard's tenure, don't realize that his first responsibility was get rid of the black eye relative to the Seton Hall program. So the record doesn't reflect that but he gets, he checks the box in accomplishing that he has then turned the corner with the Isaiah Whitehead recruiting class and brought them back to winning basketball. Uh, I think there's a couple things though, that some fans that have seen a broader scope of coaches or m- multiple decades of Seton hall basketball that they still want to see. There's the PJ standard. PJ's standard was not just measured by his total win record. It was making a run in the tournament, winning B- biggies championships, both in the regular season and then the postseason. And then on top of that, PJ recruited in-state. He was a dynamic recruiter, and maybe he was struggling towards the back end or he was getting uh, tired of having to recruit. Maybe that was part of the lure of going to the NBA. But I think Kevin needs to show that he can start landing some of the bigger five-star guys, a la what Jay Wright did. Jay Wright was not always landing big-time recruits. But as his program developed and created a winning culture the better kids wanted to come. I'd like to see Kevin, you know, progress in terms of his post success. And I'd like Kevin to progress in terms of his recruiting within the tri-state area and dominating that, that higher end four to five star recruit. Not all the time, but more often than we've seen. And then I think once he closes the gap on those two elements of his coaching career, I think his legacy is going to be pretty high up there. But I think those two chapters are completely unwritten at this point.
1: Yeah, Mike's not often, you know, much to much against public perception. I actually like Coach, but I also look at him in a kind of realistic fashion. You know, in general, coaches finish at third place. I mean, that's our. If you look at him when we've been successful, it's a third place finish. We are one and four under him in the NCAA tournament. Now, I know the tournament has it sometimes it's luck the draw, et cetera, but it, your record is what your record is. So those folks that want to build Coach Willard a statue out in front of the rec center are, are, I think, are a little crazy. And I think the people that want to chase him out with the, uh, with the pitchforks and, and torches are a little crazy as well. You know, we need that next step. I mean, look, look at Maryland. They lost a coach because the fan base was unhappy with how their coach was performing And there's a lot of similarities there. And as as a matter of fact, there's a lot more uh, success in the NCAA tournament for him than there was, than coach Willard has had. So Mike's not wrong. The legacy is yet to still, is yet to be written. He still has a lot of opportunity to take it to that next level. We need that second weekend.
0: Well, I mean, look at his overall record, right? I mean, while he was at Seton Hall, give, give me a second here to kind of just tally this up here real quick. But I mean, I, I, I don't think he stands that far above 500 for his overall career record. I mean, he was about eight games below 500 for his tenure while he was at Iona. And overall for his entire career, uh, he's 58 games above 500. And his time with Seton Hall, he's 213 and 151. Now let's be honest. Most coaches in the big east are going to have a, you know, inflated non-conference record. They're going to be that 9 and 2, even if they have a rough year and they're 7 and 4, you're going to be plus on the plus side in terms of your record in the non-conference because you're beating up on the lesser opponents. I'd like to see the numbers. I feel like Willard's about a 500 coach in his time in conference play. Like I said, for the decade from where we were, he's accomplished things that he should get recognition for. You know, coaching longevity makes a difference. But at the end of the day, people are gonna remember the big wins. And he hasn't he's had that one moment with the Big East Tournament Championship. But beyond that, he's still lacking that signature big postseason win. He's had some nice ones splattered here and there throughout the regular season, or maybe like a big non-conference win against Texas and Michigan. You could even go back and highlight the the Maryland wins, but or i.e. the Kentucky win. Shame on me. He's had some landmark wins, but Those tend to get forgotten when they happen in November. People want to see those wins happen in March. And like I said, he's just missing that element of his resume
2: it's it's the it's the final stretch of the season is where is where he's been lacking in and it makes sense look the pirates you know i I think you guys mentioned it the other day you don't want to share a big east championship regular season with two other teams you know that should have never happened with the way that team was built and it did so i think you know there's it's that finishing the season strong that is still lacking for this team especially come march but one thing i think that's interesting and you know you guys might i don't know if you guys have really talked about it. i haven't heard you guys talk about it at all but you know you guys are on the west coast uh so you don't get to travel out to the Prudential center a lot for games so you're watching a ton of games on the Fox sports network. Uh, how has it been for you guys to watch games? Because from what I understand the, uh, at least for the games that, that have been at home when I have been at the games, the, the broadcasters haven't been there. For the more recent games, they've been actually recording from a studio and it's kind of like that COVID mix where like you don't get that type of energy. Have you guys noticed it? Has it impacted you guys viewing the game, digesting the game? Because I think a bigger part of all this is going to be in a couple years when the Fox deal is up. And I think Fox has been an incredible partner for the Big East. I think they have really done a great job, you know, give Nova credit. They've won two national championships. It's helped elevate the conference, but there's going to be talk about expanding the conference teams. You know, people are already starting those rumors. It started at the beginning of the year and everyone was like, well, we're not going to worry about that yet. But what has that type of Fox experience been for you guys as fans watching from across the country?
0: I think Tommy's going to tell you that Jim Jackson sucks, whether he's on site or whether he's in the studio or so calling it from the studio. That uh, that is not
1: true, Michael. That is um, not true.
0: I think it makes a difference. And I, it's really unfortunate to, you know, not have him calling games anymore um, why am I drawing a blank from his name? The guy, the guy with the Brian undefeated custer streak. Brian, Brian custer. custer, thank you. Brian Custer was a great example of a play-by-play announcer who got into the spirit of the event based on the energy in the building, right? A couple of those mile Powell moments, the game against Marquette, uh, even Gus Johnson calling the Villanova game uh, the, the following weekend uh, when, when he passed, when, when the, uh, Nelson passes it back to Powell from the logo and he hits that dagger three against Villanova. Those were games where you felt that the announcer was engaged because of the environment around them. Um, I think you're maybe losing some of that from the play-by-play announcers. I just think you get what you get from the color guys. Either they're good or they're not. I think we have our favorites, and we have ones that are kind of just mailing it in or haven't done their homework. I, I miss the play-by-play guy feeding off the energy of the crowd. But at the end of the day, you feel the crowd coming through the television still. I don't think that gets lost. I know some people were giving some feedback that maybe it's not as loud as what people are experiencing on-site. You can tell the difference between the Seton Hall crowd, the student section, versus what it was in the past, without a doubt.
1: You you know, we actually gave them a mic flop this past week about not coming to the Prudential Center and uh, announcing the game uh, from, from, from local. And, you know, they did it from the studios. Uh, but to be honest with you, I'm not. I'm not there to listen to them. I know we have a lot of fun, kind of giving the announcers grief and our mic drops and mic flop section. Just like we have fun giving Coach Willard some grief when we do the deep thoughts section. Uh, but you know, it doesn't take away from watching the guys. We ended up getting so tuned in to what the guys are doing that we end up. Having to listen to the game again a second time to see what what stupid things the announcer said, so uh, you know it, I'm, I'm not. It doesn't bother me as much.
0: You also brought up expansion, Chris. I, I, I'm not seeing it right now. I mean, UConn just made sense, right, I man? I don't think we I think some people didn't want UConn to come back in for certain. I'm one of them. No, I'm, I'm one of them. I didn't want them in. I, I didn't want. It makes a ton right, of sense. It makes it, a ton, makes of, a ton sense, of sense. But, but I didn't want them in. Just, as because as a Seton Hall fan, it makes things harder, right? It's, a, it's another recruiting uh, battle it, for it, Kevin Willard to have, have to overcome. Yeah, it was the recruiting. Yeah. And and if they recruit successfully, and look, Tom and I like Danny Hurley. Right? We think Danny Hurley is going to be a successful coach in this league. He's got that dynamic personality. He has already won battles on the recruiting front since they've joined the Big e circle. And it looks like their recruiting continues to step up. Danny's going to tell you differently that he was doing it from the get-go, but I'm not buying it. He's got bigger names on his roster since the Big East logo was associated to that program again. There's a successful history, even though they've won a, uh, a national title post-Big East uh, tenure. But they're a Big East program. They have the history. Uh, they should be a perennial top three team in the conference. That's not good for Seton Hall. I mean, Kevin was tongue-in-cheek about it. But if you got him on a, like a lie detector, he probably didn't want you come back. But in terms of dollars and cents... Notoriety for the league, giving you two more quality games on your resume, totally makes sense. Give me another team. Everyone jokes about Gonzaga. That that's not happening. First of all, from I I don't think it makes sense. I
2: don't no, think it that makes doesn't. sense.
0: But, well, they got the Catholic right angle, right? But the the three thousand miles away, and I, I'm I don't I'm not buying it. Give me another team that raises the profile of this conference like UConn did. Give me Notre Dame. Give me Notre Dame back. Let them let their football
2: stay independent, which it always has been. You know, they were one of the last teams to leave the Big East to begin with when they went to the ACC because they were waiting to see what was going to happen because they didn't have the pressure of football. I think Notre Dame makes a ton of sense and it will help their football because they're required to play five games a year versus the ACC already. And it's impacting a lot of their bigger games.
0: If you're going to bring back a team. But, but, or, does, Notre Dame team. Boost, but does Notre Dame boost the profile from a basketball perspective? I think it kind of aligns because their football doesn't have to kind of mishmash and you're, you're not threatened by them leaving the conference for football where another program, if you brought a Syracuse back, you're always afraid that they could get lured away for football again. I, I get all that um but does it really raise the basketball profile i I like notre dame though it's a a good thought i don't know because by going to 12 you're going to lose the round robin 100 that's the worst part and that's the worst part is is notre dame worth losing the round robin facing a team home and away i I like it the way that it is i thought uconn was pushing it a little bit but it made sense and that's it you're you're capped at your round robin now I'd i'd like to keep it right where it's at
1: You know, earlier in the podcast, someone mentioned the yin and the yang of Mike and I, you know, and that's, I think, what makes our our partnership uh, what it is. You know, Mike will tell you from his perspective, I loved UConn coming back because there's not enough hate in the Big East. Come on, you don't get excited for a Butler game. You kind of get excited over a Xavier game. These aren't things that you can sink your teeth into. Thank God... Marquette had Woge, uh, Wojo coaching them for as long as they did because they'd be another boring game that you wouldn't care about. Well, bring back UConn. You want to bring in Notre Dame? Great. I hate Notre Dame. Bring them in. Syracuse? Yeah, bring him in. I hate they hate Jimmy Bayheim and those guys. Bring them back. Add excitement. Add a little bite to these games. Mike, you're not wrong, though, about losing the round robin. But bring in these guys that you can really sink your teeth into. Your attendance will go up. The notoriety will go up, the visibility will
0: go up. That's an interesting point. I hate agreeing with Tom, right? Now that Theo John's not there, now that Wojo's not there, I'm watching that Marquette team last night, and I'm like, do I really hate this Marquette team anymore? It's different. You don't it's hate them. It's not, right? You don't hate them. But, but I I see UConn, and it doesn't matter who, who's
1: on that court. Qu- I hate UConn, right? Yeah. They're yeah. telling me bad kid's not there anymore. You know, come Come on. <laughs> And then, (laughs) you know, and as we like start wrapping
2: up here, one thing I I admire about your guys' podcast and why I wanted you on is just the vast range that you guys have had in terms of guests. Uh, And you talk about that yin and yang bouncing off one another so well, who has been your favorite interview that you guys have had on and who is someone that you still really want to try to get on? Uh, and I want to hear from both of you
0: separate well, answers. I'm, 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 you know, th- I'm just trying to process here. I mean, there's, we've had a lot, I, for what we've accomplished in the, the three plus years, uh, we, we just put together the summer series as just something to stay connected and not have as much dead air. I, we didn't expect to get as many interviews on the docket to this point as we've had. So I feel like that's a, that's quite an accomplishment from where we started from. Uh, but I think we've kind of taken it for granted sometimes. I, I go back and I listen to all of them, believe it or not. I mean, as, I'm, as I have dead time when I drive, maybe that's a little a little egotistical myself, but I like going back and listening to those interviews. I mean, Tom, there's so many where I like it when a player opens up and shares something that has not been public seat in hall knowledge before. Like we heard more about Shaw's injury uh, after after the Oregon game. We heard about Donald Copeland who apparently played his entire senior uh, season with a bum ankle. Uh, Ty Shine kind of opened up uh, Pandora's box for us and went behind that Eddie Griffin issue. Uh, but what I like best, I mean, th- these are interviews that probably did not get as many listens. I really enjoyed listening to Greg Tynes. There's, there's a lost treasure in Seton Hall history from back in the 70s who goes on to having a you know, storied high school coaching career for New Jersey basketball, and most people don't know about Greg. So, and I don't think Seton Hall, and I'll, I'll, I'll be blunt here, I don't think our athletics department does a good enough job celebrating, celebrating the program history and promoting these names for the younger audience or consistently – bringing them back to celebrate what they did accomplish. Uh, We did an episode this past summer going over the 1981 Houston game. And we had Dan Calandrillo on for a second time. And we had Dan Dunn and we had Tom Brown. And we spent a solid hour going back and breaking down some key plays of that game. Monumental win for that team, kind of blazing their path into the Big East at that time. To listen to those guys talk about the pride, almost what? 40 years later, Tom, but the pride and they remember some of those plays down to the detail, but the joy, the pride, the spirit, the passion, it hasn't waned in 40 years. And I think our program needs to do a better job of celebrating the history. Uh, the, the Nick Workman's of the world, uh, you know, all, all those guys where we, we do the Mount Rushmore has been very popular on social media to put out your, your Mount Rushmore, give me your $15 team. And there are names that should be on these lists that fans have no idea who they are or they're not even being included in the conversation. So I, I probably don't have a, an absolute favorite because they've all been so enlightening and, and so engaging. Um, but I would like to see the school embrace some of what we do and promote those interviews or go out and do them themselves. Uh, so that, that would be my take from the summer series. I'll let, I'll let Tom try to narrow it down to just one.
1: It'd be way too hard to use the term favorite i mean you've got heroes of my youth that we've been able to talk to uh, you know dan calendrillo as michael mentioned uh you know mark bryant uh,
0: fanboy uh, fanboy
1: oh absolutely <laughs> I, I told him a great story of his sister beating me up and down the court when i was a freshman in the rec center um, but i like to go with the surprising interviews the surprising interviews are the ones that i take most joy in and it's, it's like the Remus-Caucanus interview. He was so gauging. And it, I thought this interview was hysterical. He was so self-deprecating. Uh, you know, Sterling Gibbs was a really good interview. I mean, he gave us some information. Um, you know, Paul Goss, the name kind of forgotten. Paul was a very um, big contributor to the team. He was a huge huge defensive spark plug and and whatnot, you know, Fuquan Edwin. I mean, all these little, all all these ones that were like really surprising as they came through. So it's hard to pick out one. I I think the one that stuck with me the most, I think, just because of his importance in the, uh, in the basketball world was probably Andrew Gaze, you know, the greatest Australian basketball player of all time. I don't know if it's the best one we did, I don't know if it was a surprising one, but I'd go with Andrew Gates.
0: Right, so you mm-hmm. asked another question, Chris. You said, who do I want though, right? Look, there's probably a big wish list. I definitely want to talk to Raph at some point. Uh, talking to Raph is just uh, listening to Raph on all these other episodes that he does is, is a joy. Listening to call a game is a joy. Uh, we'd like to get Terry on at some point. We, we almost had that lined up and it just kind of fell through, but you know, Terry's the goat in Tom's eyes. So you, you, you got to interview the goat. Uh, but with everything that's going on at some point, I want the dust to settle. I don't want it to be right at this moment. There's got, there's got to be a Miles Powell interview. It just has to be because there's the great moments of the games that he played. There's the drama off the court. I mean, I want Miles to share his story and obviously get a chance to, I don't know if redemption is the right word, but just shed a different light. I mean, when Ty was, Shine was done with his interview with us, and then spoke to us after like the comments were being made on the rivals message board and to have the fans sit there and go, Hey, you know, we appreciated his perspective and he still has a lot of passion and emotion for what went down. And he feels like he still bleeds blue to this day after how he was painted in the image of the, you know, the Eddie Griffin saga. To me that that was awesome to, to give a player a conduit to share his thoughts and and his perspective and kind of almost write that final chapter, right? And I think at some point Miles is going to need that opportunity. Heck, I, I'd love to be the one that gives him that opportunity. Yeah. It,
1: it, it's got to be it's it's got to be PJ. That's that's the one I'm I'm waiting for. And and if we get PJ, he, he better put aside like three hours for us because we got a lot uh, of questions. right. I mean.
0: PJ's done interviews. It's like, how do you unpack it all and kind of get it down to like a solid 45 minutes to an hour? I could probably sit there all day for three hours, sit there beyond that because there's so many nuances of his career and outside of Seton Hall basketball. I mean, he's got, he's got the USA Olympics. He's got his NBA coaching career. He got into broadcast. I mean, and without PJ, probably none of this takes place. Right. So shame on me for not saying PJ, I wouldn't even know where to start, Tom. That's the problem he would definitely be mind. the
2: heart. He would definitely probably be the hardest because there is so much to unpack with him. And there's been so much already out there of what has been said already. And there's so much of the stories that are known. So that would be probably the most challenging, but also obviously, you know, that that's, you talk about yeah, Matt Rushmore, like, that's up there. Like but how many I, I times do think
0: you ask him the same question about the 89 foul call? He's probably only been asked that a million times. And then right, you have to do right. an interview and you have to bring it up, but how do you not make it dominate the entire conversation? Yeah. It'd be a challenge. It'd be, it'd be interesting to take on, Uh, And and look, I'd I'd be honored to do it. At the same time, PJ is the the gold standard. If anybody's getting a statue built for them at Seton Hall, the statue should be built for PJ.
2: It better be PJ. But you know, and I I take that. I agree with what you're saying about Powell. To me, you know, he he needs to have his story told once once the dust settles. Um, Whether it's from a podcast, from the university opening him back up with open arms, he needs to have that that story because he is still one of the greatest players in recent memory for Seton Hall, if not ever. And he deserves that. And you know, what's going on now, it just sucks because it's a stain on his legacy right now, but you know, time heals everything for a lot of these guys,
0: but but it might not though. Right. We might, we might get to hear the story. He might get to give his take on it. And that might not be enough for certain fans. I mean, I know it's still very raw right now, but when you read the, the comments that fans are sharing relative to miles right now, they are not kind. No, nope, I mean, enough. and, and he, he should have been, it, it, as Tom said, if it was up to him, his, his, his number was getting retired senior night at Villanova. I mean, and, and we went a complete 180. Uh, I don't know how quickly he comes back from it yet. He, the story would have to be pretty deep, pretty heartfelt. Uh, and it'd have to be something that we kind of haven't heard yet to take a different perspective, to change some of these, you know, hardline opinions that people have about miles right now. I, I'm still on the fence. I want to hear more information. Because, I mean, he truly gave us a ton of Seton Hall basketball joy, you know, in the recent memory here. And and I'm still going to look back at those games and never forget some of the surreal moments that Miles put on the court. We we joked the intro, right? Everyone's like, oh, you have such a great intro to your episode. We we were like, we didn't even debate taking off that call of of Powell. It's just he's he's a part of Seton Hall history in my eyes at this point, a hundred, a hundred percent, hundred percent. And
2: I think something that's, Oh, you talk about the legacy of scene. I know you guys talked about in the last episode of how much you love Walsh gym and how with some of these COVID games, maybe it'd be worth to have the games there. I've seen the renovations now a few times firsthand. They are incredible. It doesn't do it justice in photos or TV. You guys, you guys were there. Walsh Walsh is different. It's different than going to the continental airlines arena. It's different than going to the Prudential center. Um, these on-campus experiences to me, it's like I wish Scene Hall could play their home games on campus. I think it brings an entire different dynamic. I really do. And I've always felt that way since I've been, even from when I was a, a student at Scene Hall. Um, what do you guys think of the work that's being done at Scene Hall in terms of the actual infrastructure and, and renovating Walsh gym and where everything has been since you guys have been there. Cause I'll tell you what, I, I left scene hall in 2015 from my grad program and there's been a lot of work done at that uh, facility since then already. So I can't even imagine for you guys based on, you know, when's the last time you guys were back on campus.
0: I actually got a chance to be back there just a couple of weeks ago about for Thanksgiving. I mean, it's, it's changing. I mean, the campus is, is greatly changing. I just, I think we're limited though, for what we can do this, The infrastructure can only go so far based on the space availability. It's not even about money. I mean, I think if, The land was there. I think they find a way to get the money. Um, So in terms of the practice facilities, no matter what we do, we're always going to be a step behind. I think that's just the reality of it all. And Walsh, I wish I had the opportunity to be maybe a little bit older from this perspective and hear what it was like to play a Big East game in the early 80s. I never got a chance to experience that, Tom. I mean, I only got to see games in Walsh when it was like the lesser, you know, D2 opponent, the exhibition games. I never got to see a full big East throwdown streamers on the court. I, I never got Walsh from that perspective to make the comparison.
1: No, by the time I was actually going to games, the first game I went to was in 1987 against Iona. I still remember it uh, you know, very vividly. Um, they weren't, you know that the brendan Byrne arena as it was called back then was already in place the biggest games were going there uh but it it was definitely a different experience and from that point as a you know 13 year old kid i was like this is where i'm coming this is where i want to be this whole feeling the whole atmosphere is fantastic uh you know i we're talking about all the infrastructure changes, not only for, for the basketball program, you know, the squad stuff has changed immensely. I mean, graduating 97, Mikey in, in 01, just, it, it's almost unrecognizable to, to old heads as you come on. You're like, oh my goodness, look at this now. It, it is just so impressive what they can do. And to be honest, they've actually started doing things that I thought they should have done a long time ago. They've kind of expanded past the gates for some of the administrative offices and things of that nature. And if they get really creative, they can expand even further into South Orange. you got to make that relationship work somehow. You know, there's there things you can do. But as far as an on-campus facility to actually play games, yeah, that's probably not in the cards. They're not giving back Ivy Hill Park. they are not building anything on that. It's just not happening. I think the Rock is spectacular. It took me 12 minutes uh, a couple of years ago to get home uh, or get back on the campus from the rock Just shot up. Um, what was it? Uh, was it South orange Avenue? Or Don't get me started. You point? gave me
0: a, we did a whole episode of you giving me the side street traffic reports. Do not do that again, please.
1: Fantastic. Do not do that again. Easy to get through, man. But no, <laughs> I, it's, it's really impressive. I, I, I love it all. Uh, I, I,
0: I can say though, I was there for the North Fork state game my senior season when Eddie Griffin had a triple double and and the the triple came from blocks that night. I think that was the only, I mean, to to my understanding, that was the only Seton Hall triple double ever recorded on the books. So there's my, there's my claim to fame relative to Walsh. How about that? The team has just done a fantastic job um,
2: at the athletic department of really not just building up, like you said, for the men's and women's program, but what they did with the baseball field and the soccer field. It really has been impressive. Uh, And, you know, just last thing here is just, From both of you, I would love to hear your final thoughts on where you see the programs going into Biggie's play, the men and the women. Because I think right now, you know, the women, the one thing on Courtside Pirates, love to give recaps of what they're doing. Uh, They struggled in the midpoint in the non-conference schedule. Uh, They got back, they fought back to six and five uh, at, in the non-conference portion. And, uh, they're now one and two in biggies play after a really big win against Marquette. Uh, it was led by, you know, Lauren Park lane, who's just been sensational all season long. Uh, she's had 25 points in the game and Andres Pinoza Hunter versus Wagner, uh, just exploded for a, a strong double double as did Sydney cooks. Where do you see both these teams right now? And, uh, what would you like to see from both of them as uh, Big biggies play officially get, really starts to kick off?
1: Uh, You know, Mike, I'll take the women's team. I I think the out-of-conference for Coach B's team, and I love Coach B. uh, You know, we got an opportunity to interview Maya and uh, Lauren Park Lane last year. Um, I I think it was a little underwhelming. I think they left some money on the table, and I think that's going to end up hurting them on the back end. Um, I I don't know that you're going to get enough quality wins out of the Big East schedule that's going to allow them to get – to uh the tournament which is obviously the goal you know that that's where you want to go it's where you want to be where you want to take it uh, i would like to see them kind of come out strong play games as possible i know they just had a game against marquette which which they won uh but it's going to be a lot of work and it's gonna we're gonna have to see where that goes
0: i think they got to put up a gaudy number in terms of their conference record because of those missed opportunities in the in the non-conference um, I know the, the women's teams have like the 15 scholarships and they normally go deeper with their roster than typically the men do. But if you watch Tony's rotation, he really only goes about eight deep and he doesn't get much scoring off the bench from his team. Uh, I think Sydney Cooks, and we, you know, we did the interview with Sydney early this year. I think people don't really know much about her yet. She is a dynamic player for them at 6'4", truly giving them an actual presence in the middle, back to the basket. She can even shoot the three. I think she's feeling her way out too, right? Just kind of like, Andra's a little different. I mean, I, I, I know Sydney has a, an outgoing personality, but it doesn't come through the way that it does for Lauren Park Lane or an Hunter Espinosa. They, they just have a more vocal on-court leadership, whereas Sydney is a little more soft-spoken. I'm not saying she can't get a, you know, get a little dirty under the basket and throw a couple elbows and, and make a difference in the middle, but I think she's still trying to find her way and she put up a big number against Wagner, too, if I'm not mistaken. She had a double-double double, uh, that, double, yeah. that jumped off the page. I, I think when those three can become dynamic, that's going to open up the floor more for Maya Jackson to get uncontested threes. And that'll be her game. And now you've got four guys that can score in double figures on a given night. And I think that's when they're going to be successful. If those four can collectively put it together, I think they can play with most teams in the nation, maybe not the elite of the elite but they could probably dominate the Big East and and make an argument to get an at-large bid, but they're going to essentially have to run the table minus UConn from what I've seen so far.
2: It's going to be interesting to see. I'm a big fan of Coach Bazell and the work he's done, but I completely agree. I think what they did in the in the non-conference schedule did them no favors come the rest of the Big East stretch at a conference, which has already struggled to put, teams into the NCAA tournament, which is, you know, last year they only had two teams go in. There should have been three. Seton Hall was right there. You know, they were one of the first teams out. It, it's it's a disappointing ride right now for the women's side of the Big East Conference. So it'll be very interesting to see how they do come down the stretch, especially with them being undermanned as well.
1: Well, for the men's, guy, for the men's team, I mean, what a surprise. I mean, you were saying earlier, you thought, it was, you thought they were going to finish off the non-conference seven and four. I even was more, I, I was even leaning saying, that six and five was probably a bigger possibility than the nine and two Mikey thought was going to happen. So, shame on me for not having as much confidence in this very deep, very talented team. So, what I'd like to see continue going in that direction, continue playing defense with that aggressive nature, continue doing the little things to keep it going, and start developing that offense. If we get all those things put together, there's no good reason why we can't be the top team in this conference. We've got to prove it.
0: I think this team so far has established that they have a high floor. I'm just not sure what the ceiling is yet, right? And I, and I think there's like a, a lot of unknowns. I mean, we expected Rutgers to be a more formidable opponent. That didn't play itself out. I, would, I was intrigued to see how they handled Patino in a neutral site setting at the Garden. Um, blown away by the upsets against Michigan and Texas, but I'd like to see Texas and Michigan, uh, you know, back up that, that top 10 ranking, which they haven't done so far. So I think they have an opportunity to be somewhere in that four to six range if they continue to play at the level that they're playing. Um, I'd also kind of like to see how the rotation plays out. There's still a lot of unknown with that. We talked about Harris. We talked about, we didn't even talk about Tyree Samuel. I mean, I mean, geez, here's a guy who in his last couple of games might take the jump that we've all been hoping for. So there's a lot of guys that can still add more value to this roster and possibly go 10 deep. Jeez. How about a Brandon Weston? There's just, there's so much unknown with where this team can still go. But if you told me that Willard kind of hunkers down and goes with his like seven or eight that he trusts the most. Yeah, this is a tournament team. This is a team that's going to have a chance to, you know, have a favorable matchup in the first round. Uh, They probably should be top three in the big East. No questions asked. And the question is, can they get over the hump and play in a second weekend? I I don't know. know, They they should have an opportunity to do that, assuming that injuries and COVID-19 don't kind of throw them a curveball and derail the season. The talent is on this roster. It's just a matter of how it all blends together. So far, defensively, it is. Offensively, it's got some, some growing pains to work through. But if they find a way to consistently put that A game on the court, which we haven't seen yet, it could be a special team.
2: High floor, uncertain on the ceiling, I think is the best way to wrap this up. This team has a lot of potential. The talent is there. Their their grind to deliver defensively is there and keeps them in these games. And I think that's a great way to finish this up. And, you know, from friendly rivals that we are in the podcast world to guests on Courtside Pirates, the voices of Left Coast Pirates, Tom Kaharski and Mike Daziri. I wish you and your families nothing but a wonderful Christmas, New Year, and holiday season. And thank you for
0: joining me on Courtside Pirates. This was a long and fun one. Uh, Same to you, Chris. Stay warm out there, man. We'll, We'll do the best we can to stay warm out here in San Diego.
1: This was a lot of fun. Merry Christmas, Chris.
2: This brings us to our closing segment, Courtside Perspective. Special thanks again to Mike and Tom of left coast pirates for being on today's episode and congratulations to my favorite pirate miles Powell, on earning his first appearance in the NBA with the Philadelphia 76ers and be sure to follow me on Twitter at Pazis for updates throughout the season. Merry Christmas and happy new year pirates fans. We're going to be in for a great 2022 with the scene Hall men's and women's basketball programs. The next episode of Courtside Pirates will air in 2022 following Scene Hall's games at Providence vs. Villanova and at Butler. Again, my name is Chris Pazes. Thank you for listening. We will see you next time on Courtside Pirates.